Well, good morning, everybody. This is Granny D. Dorcas Smith out of Plymouth, Michigan, here to talk to you about the TR90 program. Actually, everybody else talks about the TR90 program in one of the most wonderful way, as did Nikki yesterday. So I am looking at more of the metacognitive side of the TR90 program, which is why does it work and what does it do for us? Well, meanwhile, it's an amazing program, and it absolutely helps you to build more muscle and less and, and use your fat. Now, since I've been doing the TR90 program, I have gone from 25% muscle to almost 32% muscle. I'm between 31 and 32% right now. Now, you're supposed to be losing muscle as you age, and I'm gaining muscle. So I'm hoping that that's part of what will make me strong and make my life, the end part of my life a lot more pleasant than it might have been before. Having had cancer and being very sick, I know what it's like when it isn't fun and when it's not good. And I can honestly say that because of this program and, of course, youth, which is my favorite, favorite, favorite uh, new skin product right along with Nanopack and TR90, between them, I am healthier and more energetic, and I feel better than I have in over 20 years. But what I'm going to talk about today also has to do with this program. You can't do the TR90 program without moving. TR90 Body Burn 30. You just can't not move. You have to exercise in some way every day. It doesn't have to be excessive exercise. As little as twenty minutes a day walking will be enough. Actually, some of the work that uh, John Rahe, and I'm talking about John Rahe again today, did in Spark, said that even as little as ten minutes walking will do it. But if you can get 20 to 30 minutes of just walking, if you walk in your house every day, I can get up to 10,000 steps just walking around my house. So, and 10,000 steps is just over four miles a day. You get that in and your body starts to respond. The other thing is stairs. I truly believe in weight-bearing exercise. Weight-bearing exercise last but three days. So I just remember every time I'm climbing my stairs, and especially when I've run out of day and I'm climbing them at 10 o'clock at night, that this climbing is going to last for three days. That comes to Linda G. Haskus. I think that's amazing. All right. So why is exercise important? It's the part that keeps the brain happy. And when your brain is happy, you function better. The chapter we're on now, well, I'm actually reading to you from Go Wild by John Rahe, MD, co-author with Richard Manning. Eat fat, run free, be social, and follow evolution's other rules for total health and well-being. So today we're looking at the central nerves how the body wires together health and happiness. 
Okay. So he says, let's go back to the town near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Sue Carter. Sue Carter's home. Sue Carter's husband is an intense-looking fellow. He met us at the door, introduced himself in a business-like way, and retreated so we could talk with Carter. Later, there was a break in our conversation, and he was rummaging around in the kitchen, opening drawer after drawer, searching for the tamper, for his espresso, his espresso machine, a clear fake case of partner-based misplacement of crucial accessories. Ah, he said. Sue puts things away, and I look for things, he announces without preamble. I've decided it's all about the other person thinking you knew exactly what they were doing. The problem is the interpretation of intent and whether the feedback from it modifies behavior. It's not apparent that an espresso tamper merits this depth of analysis, but then this guy is Stephen Porges, or Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S. His career has been nothing so much as tracing a vital thread, a little, a literal twisting, winding cord that can tie together the ideas that Richard and I have been tracking in this book. Carter studies social bonding chemistry and oxytocin. Now, I've been talking about oxytocin for the last three weeks. And oxytocin is that neurotransmitter that allows us to be more social. Forget studies the neural structure of social bonding, especially the vagus nerve. So listen to this again. Carter studies the social bonding chemistry and, oxy- and oxytocin while Porget studies the neural structure of social bonding, especially the vagus nerve. Think of it as Carter knowing the software and Porget specializing in the hardware. But this nerve, the vagus nerve, is where all of the topics that they've been discussing about seem to converge. In In signals along the vagus, and central nervous system, in which it is a key player. Now remember that when we consider the sweep of evolution and its intention for our well-being, it brought us ultimately to social bonding, the whole business, the brain, exercise, eating, minding, and sleeping, traced in the end to our need to deal with one another to empathy and altruism. More than any of our other signature traits, these two require the most brain power and allow us to be who we are, the most social of social animals. These are the capstones. And when we parse that out, especially when considering the evolutionary context, our deep history as pieces of meat for predators. Then all of this must have something to do with stress, fear, terror, and dealing with these matters in order to survive. Hmm. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas 
the writer who spent her formative years with the African hunter-gatherers, writes a great deal about lions in her account of the sand people of the Kalahari. The sand people she knew did indeed, did indeed face lions as predators, as all people have for almost all of time. Yet, these people seem to have finally wrought an intricate relationship with the, with the lions, the animals that own the night. Among the people we knew, she says, only lions generated profound respect, she wrote. Respect, not terror, but respect. Thomas witnessed a number of confrontations between lions and the sand people and describes nowhere any reaction that looks like the slightest, like panic. No one ran from the lions. No one froze in fear. No one certainly engaged in fight. So here it is, the fundamental raw, tooth and bone confrontation with the barest facts of biology. And yet, there is no evidence whatsoever of resorting to the basic biological me mechanisms for terror, which is fight, flight, or freeze. Instead, for the sand people of the Kalahari, there is respect interesting but there is more in the species no sorry there is more in the specifics of what is really going on on far from fleeing the lion the sand people had a protocol protocol that's thomas's word elizabeth marshall thomas's word they had a protocol and it involved walking walking calmly, unhurriedly, and not directly as, free, as fleeing prey might, but obliquely at an angle away from the lion. And at the same time, they spoke to the lion in well-modulated tones of respect, addressing it as old lion. Richard Manning has had a direct and similar permanent personal experiment, experience, sorry. Richard Manning, get the words out yet, has had a direct and similar personal experience with a grizzly bear in the wild and observed exactly the same protocol, accepted by bear bi biologists as the way to deal with these great big predators. The protocol is ancient and endures and has much to say about meeting not just predators, but the challenges of modern life. Porget thinks he can trace the development of that protocol in the body's most ancient and torturous nerve, the vagus nerve. And it gets its very name from the word that is similar to vagabond, vagus, vagus nerve, vagabond a wanderer, a traveler, a time traveler. All right, let's see where we're going here. 
we just have a few minutes left. I'm trying to decide where the end to end. Too early yet. Forges is a rare bird among scientists, a guy who has spawned his very own theory of human behavior, an idea that has accolades and practitioners and real-world on-the-ground applications. For instance, at the Center of Discovery in New York, we met a bright young guy from MIT, Matthew Goodwin, who had used Forget's idea to incorporate the same sort of telemetry that lurks in the guts of an iPhone to track and predict disruptive outbreaks in autistic people. This is the sort of application that started Forget thinking about all. This is the sort of application that started Forget thinking about all of this decades ago. The idea of measurable readable physical manifestations of our state of mind, a literal pulse of our psychological well-being. The vagus nerve is the only one that attaches to, to the most primitive lower part of the brain. And from there, it winds the unique and circuitous course that earns its name. Unlike most other nerves in the body, it wanders, not straight from eyeball to brain like the optic nerve, but downward along the neck and then branching and twisting through the core of our body, our guts, our gonads, and our viscera. And if you hear this word, visceral, you're hearing it right. But then, oddly, parts of it twist back through the throat, to take in the larynx, ears, facial muscles? Why this odd assortment of disparate organs and functions? What does our heart, just a pump really, have to do with the crinkle in the corner of our eyes? This torturous path, starting as it does in the most primitive part of our brain, is first an evolutionary trail and it clearly marks the vagus as ancient. It, takes, it makes a, its straight march to the chest and heartbeat, but also back upward to invertebrate structures that had their organs in the gills of our very, of our very distant ancestors. It is an integral part of, our net, of a network known as the autonomic nervous system, which regulates the automatic responses of our organs. But not only automatic responses, among the system's key tasks is regulation of our body's response to threat, terror, and lions, and the center of control for fight, flight, or freeze. Then, present, then, when presented with a threat, each of these strategies requires regulation throughout the territory covered by the vagus nerve and the rest of the autonomic nervous system. For, intran- for instance, the heart rate and respiration increase, both effects that supply extra energy for fight or flight. The digestive system shuts down to save energy. Same with the gonads. 
Same with the immune response. Facial muscles contract and contort to the fierce presentation of rage. The larynx tightens to pitch urgent vocalizations. This is your body on DEFCON 1. And then the threat passes, and the vagus nerve reverses all of this, the whole cycle, the arousal, the relaxation, and the, the arousal and the relaxation is an oscillation that is adaptive and the nerves, sorry, is adaptive and serves as the successful response to danger. And there we're going to stop. So now we have this very interesting nerve called the vagus nerve. It is a, it is fascinating what it does. Hold on, I, I actually I'm going to go down to one more section. I'm sorry, you guys, you're just going to have to wait. In all of this, the shutdown seems to get taken for granted, but it is not a given. The terror response just doesn't stop on its own. It requires a whole separate set of signals to shut it down. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Over time, people who are repeatedly abused or terrorized, especially as children, lose the ability to return to normal, almost as if a switch got stuck. They literally live in terror. Further tracing the course of the autonomic nervous system shows quickly why so many issues deemed psychological play out in the body. Digestive issues, impotence, poor immune response, high blood pressure, elevated heart rates, and tense faces. A curiosity about the physical manifestations of, of a psychological state is what, what brought Porges to the vagus nerve in the first place. What kept him there was the realization that the vagus nerve runs both ways. It is mostly a control nerve, signaling the organs to relax, but it also sends information back up to the brain on the state of the organs. And that's where I'm going to stop. All righty then, let's do this.